Hey everybody, welcome back. It is Hayden Clark, your host here at Help Me Believe, the show about Christian apologetics and theology. Thank you so much for tuning in. Glad to have you back. You are in for a treat today because today on the show I interviewed a real-life scientist, Dr. Michael G. Strauss. Uh, Dr. Strauss is a professor at the University of Oklahoma, which is kind of a cuss word around these parts, but uh, we'll let it slide this time. Uh, It was a lively conversation. Um, I think you'll enjoy it uh, quite a bit. Uh, Dr. Strauss is an experimental particle physicist, which is a mouthful and a lot of technical jargon, but uh, he explains everything really well and and in a clear and uh, easy way to understand uh, for a layperson like me, if you're like myself. and uh, we had a good conversation about the relationship between God and science, which is what he uh, regu- regularly writes about at his uh, website, michaelgstrauss.com. And uh, again, he is a professor at the University of Oklahoma, uh, where he teaches uh, these things. And uh, you should check out his website to learn more about uh, him and what he does. He's written a book here uh, recently called The Creator Revealed. I've been reading through it myself, and uh, there's a lot in there about uh, the Big Bang and kind of how uh, the Big Bang Big Bang relates to God and uh, the Bible, and he explains everything really well, again, in uh, <clears throat> easy-to-understand language uh, for, the, for the non-technical person like myself. And uh, I'm really enjoying it. I haven't finished it yet, but uh, it's been so good so far that I feel comfortable... Um, recommending it to you so pick up uh, pick that up i'll have both the uh, link to the website and the link to that book in the description below Uh, but before uh, we get into the show i did want to remind you that uh, you can subscribe to our patreon page and become a supporter of the show for as little as a dollar a month that's just twelve dollars a year to support uh, our ministry and what we're doing here Uh, help us out in that way but you will also get um, at the five dollar level you can get the five minute uh, bonus segment uh, five more minutes with uh, michael g strauss you won't want to miss that we talk about the limits of scientific knowledge and we also talk about artificial intelligence and if you should uh, be freaking out if the uh, end of the end of the world is coming if we are building our own demise or not find out what uh, michael strauss has to say about that But uh, before we get there, be sure to watch the episode. Enjoy the show. Thanks so much. Well, hello and welcome to Help Me Believe, the show about Christian apologetics and theology. My name is Hayden Clark, your host. And today I am excited because today on the show I'm interviewing a real-life scientist. This is a first for me. So ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Dr. Michael G. Strauss. Uh, Dr. Strauss, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for inviting me. It's great to be here. I appreciate you coming on. I'm looking forward to this. I love science, and uh, you're the first scientist I have on the show, so this uh, this should be good. Yeah, uh, hopefully not the last. Hopefully right? not the last. Hopefully I can find some more to, to get to come on. But huh. um, if you don't mind uh, introducing yourself to the audience, if uh, for those who may not be familiar uh, with who you are, if you don't mind just telling us who you are and kind of what you do. Yeah, so um, I'm a professor at the University of Oklahoma in the area of experimental particle physics, so I do that for my career. Um, I currently, I've worked at various uh, national and international labs, including the Stanford um, Accelerator, Fermi National Laboratory near Chicago, and most recently I do my research at a laboratory in Geneva, Switzerland called CERN. There's a machine there called the Large Hadron Collider, and that's where I do my research, experimental particle physics. Awesome. Um, 
at the University of Oklahoma. I live in North Texas, so I'll try not to hold that against you. Right. Well, I'm sure I don't need to remind you of a recent football game that took place. Yeah, that was but... that was good for you. Yeah. <laughs> but if things go well, we'll have a rematch at the end of the season. Hey, hopefully so. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm sure we will. But uh, yeah, notice your Texas Rangers bobblehead. So I knew you must be from there. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so half of what you just said, I didn't really understand because I'm a, a lay person, not a scientist, and I'm sure the, the majority of the audience is as well. So do you mind explaining what an experimental particle physicist is and does? Yeah. So the goal of particle physics is to understand the smallest structure of the universe, um, what the fundamental particles are in the universe. So, uh, hopefully we all know that everything is made of atoms and atoms, of course, have at their center a nuclei um, or a nucleus. The nucleus is made of neutrons and protons, and neutrons and protons are made of these things called quarks, which were actually discovered in 1974. So I say that an educated person should know that the fundamental building blocks of the universe are quarks. Um, and then the question is, what holds those quarks together? What holds the atom together? What are the fundamental forces? And so we study that. Um, and as well, we're asked, are those truly the smallest, most fundamental particles? Are quarks made of something? Um, or are they fundamental in and of themselves? The way we do this, um, the, the example I always give is, suppose you wanted to know what your car was made of, but you didn't have any tools to take your car apart, but you wanted to look inside and see how it works. So what do you do? You don't have any pliers or screwdrivers or wrenches to take it apart. So you get the car going really, really fast, and you smash it against a brick wall or maybe even against another car going really, really fast, and it breaks up into its smaller pieces. So this is what we do, not with cars, of course, uh, but with protons. We get protons moving nearly the speed of light in a tunnel that's about 300 feet underground and 17 miles around, and the particles move nearly the speed of light. We smash them together to see how they break up or what happens when they smash together. And then we build these big particle detectors to see the debris from the collision. And by looking at that debris, we understand the structure of the universe. Uh, the public sometimes calls these big machines atom smashers, but atoms are huge in the world of particle physics. So we smash things that are, of course, much, much smaller than atoms and probe much, much deeper than that. I never would have guessed that that is uh, how they do that by smashing things together like that. That's incredible. Yeah. <laughs> so, and, and it does a lot. It breaks things up. But even Einstein's famous equation e equals mc squared, what that, that means is that mass, the m, is a form of energy, the e. So the, the energy of motion of the particles colliding actually creates mass. You change kinetic mm -hmm. energy of motion to mass. So we actually create mass in the laboratory and therefore create new particles some of which are very uncommon, some of which don't really exist except maybe near black holes and at the early part of the universe. Wow. So uh, what made you uh, want to become an uh, experimental particle physicist or just a scientist in general? Yeah, that, that's a great question. I actually come from a family of theologians, and uh, my father was a pastor, my grandfather was a pastor, I have a brother who's a uh, seminary professor, so I had no role models for a scientist, but I grew up um, watching kind of the space race and watching humans go to the moon, and that technology captivated me. Mm -hmm. And so I was always interested, first, kind of in science and technology, and second, in 
asking the why questions. Um, I remember, yeah, you, you've interviewed Sean McDowell. I remember when I was in high school, his father, Josh McDowell, came to my church and talked about evidence for Christianity. It was the first time I heard that there was actually evidence to support what we believed, and that was huge because I always, I always ask why, and you know, is there supporting evidence for the things I believe? So I went to, I liked science in, in high school, and I went to a college where I could study both theology and science. I still didn't know what I wanted to do in yeah. life. Um, and graduating from college, I even applied to a seminary and to graduate school. And through a bunch of circumstances, I ended up going to UCLA where I got my PhD in physics. So I was never like growing up, I want to be a scientist. I was always just, I like science and I had no role models. I didn't know what a scientist did. Right. And I found myself doing science. It's great. Well, that is, that is cool. Uh, so you just kind of had a natural uh, curiosity about the world and how it works and that sort of thing. And uh, I think if that's kind of your nature, I can see how it would easily tend towards science or even theology or philosophy or something like that. So, yeah, that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, you know, I, I always feel like um, I, once, I once was thinking about career transition, so I got the book What Colors Your Parachute, which is a book on career transition. But the first part of the book really kind of goes through what motivates you, you know, what drives you. And what I realize motivates me is truth. Mm -hmm. And that is the connection between science and, you know, good theology is you're searching for truth in different realms. Well, maybe in the same realm, but through different paths in some sense. Yeah. So do you think... Um... A lot of people would think that science is the only way to find truth. Is, do you think that that is true? I guess that's kind of, what do you call that, scientism? Yeah, um, you know, I, I think that even scientists would agree that science isn't the only way to find truth. You can't find if you love someone by science, you know. Mm -hmm. So, but, but they would say science is the only, you know, objective way to find truth, the yeah. only way that's shown itself over and over to work. And, um, you know, science has done a lot of great things. We walk around with a computer. My students walk around with a little computer in their hand all the time. They don't even look at their faces, faces of other people, only at their yeah. screens. But, you know, um, it's done great things. But I think it's pretty naive to think it's the only way to find truth or maybe not even the best way. But it certainly um, is a great way to understand the universe. For sure. So partic particularly um, for you, as uh, since you're a physicist, I wanted to ask you, I've heard some popular physicists, some popular scientists uh, claim that quantum physics, uh, which I guess is uh, an area of expertise for you, is that correct? Yeah, so quantum physics describes the universe at the smallest sizes, which is what I study. Mm -hmm. So I've heard some popular physicists and scientists say that uh, as we learn more about quantum physics, we've learned that things pop in and out of existence um, at will, kind of, and that um, then they kind of extrapolate from there to the beginning of the universe. Well, the universe could have came from nothing. Is that true, or or what would you say to that? It act, I mean, the world of quantum physics is really fascinating. Many of us who ended up doing physics for a career we're blown away by what we learned in college about quantum physics. When you shrink to the size of an atom, you encounter a world that's entirely different from anything you're familiar with in the macroscopic world. And one thing that happens is particles pop into existence, apparently from nothing. They're called virtual particles. And they actually 
play an important role in the universe that we um, that we know about. Without virtual particles, we wouldn't have the universe that we have. But if you ask, do they pop out, pop into existence from nothing? And then they go away really quick, by the way. Yeah. They live, you know, 10 to the minus 20 seconds or something, depending on the particle. But um, if you ask, do they really come from nothing? The answer is, well, no, because what we now know is that, you know, the, the space-time structure of the universe is not nothing. It's filled with things we would describe as quantum fields. And these particles pop into existence from the quantum fields. Now, people like Larry Krauss, the uh, Arizona phys um, astronomer um, or astrophysicist who wrote the book of a universe from nothing, wants to argue that, well, at one time we thought the vacuum of the universe was nothing, now we know it's filled with these quantum fields that allow particles to pop into existence. And therefore, he wants to extrapolate that, you know, maybe universes can pop into existence. And he calls that from nothing. But if you really extrapolate, the universe is popping into existence from, quote, nothing, wouldn't it be nothing? It would be some kind of right. similar quantum field of space-time or something that would be different than our universe. So... It's weird in that, yes, in some sense, these things come from nothing, but the reality is no. They need the space-time structure of our universe to pop into existence. Um, but even the fact that you know, particles that weren't there are there for a moment and then gone yeah. is pretty bizarre and pretty cool. Yeah, it's definitely uh, it's crazy. I'm, I imagine I'm, I can't speak from experience. I don't understand it at all. Well, so but... Let me say one more thing about that. So people say, well, how do you know they're there if they exist for 10 to the minus 20 That's seconds? A good, yeah, that is a good question, yeah. So what we do is we do experiments. We smash the protons together, and we predict what's going to happen. And you can do calculations that would predict what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. And if you don't include these virtual particles, you're, what you see in the lab is not what you predict. Okay. You add these virtual particles, which we understand why they would exist, now all of a sudden what you see in the lab is exactly like what you predict. Okay. So because of that, you say, well, they must really be there, even though you can't actually see them. Okay, I got you. Uh, so it, people like uh, um, Lawrence Krauss, are they re really doing like a bait and switch here where they define nothing as a quantum field and then say, see, it comes from nothing? I think most philosophers and most other scientists would say to Lawrence Krauss, your nothing is not nothing. Right. The only person, the only person I've ever heard, I'm sure there's more, who agrees that it's nothing is Richard Dawkins, who's already made up his mind about what the right. universe is like. For sure. Right. Uh, so now let's get um, more into uh, the theological realm where, where theology meets science. So some say that uh, science doesn't need God, or even that belief in God is detrimental to the scientific enterprise, or that science has... Uh, buried God, or, or <clears throat> we, don't, we no longer need God. Science has explained everything away. So how do you respond to, uh, to someone who makes these kind of claims? Yeah, um, there's, that's a great question, but you really, and there's a lot there to unpack. Mm -hmm. All of those ideas boil down to a lot of misunderstandings within the statements themselves. Um, so first of all, what do you mean when you say science doesn't need God? Well, you have to say, um, what does science do? So I, I think what people mean when they say science doesn't need God is if I can write a mathematical equation that explains what's going on in the universe, 
then I no longer need God because I've explained it. But there's a whole bunch of problems with that. First of all, the mathematics doesn't produce universes. It describes the universe. As Stephen Hawking wrote, what gives fire to the equations? What causes the equations to have any meaning? Um, and so describing the universe and even predicting what's going to happen based on the mathematics is not necessarily bringing the universe into existence or whatever. It, it's, it's not an explanation of why it's an explanation of what's happening. But even I think more important is it's a total misunderstanding of how God reveals himself. If you go through scripture and you ask, how does God reveal himself? Well, every Christian would say he does miracles, but miracles are few and far between in scripture, really. You know, how many miracles are there in a period of 3,500 years or whatever, 1,500 years within scripture, whatever it is? And so the major way God reveals himself in scripture is through natural processes. You know, one of the classic verses on God revealing himself in nature is Psalm 19.1. The heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim the work of his hands. And then you go, well, how do the heavens declare the glory of God? How do the skies proclaim the work of his hands? And you read the next verse. The sun rises and the sun brings yeah. heat to people and the sun knows where to go at night. It's because the universe works. The Bible says that God, you know, feeds the lions how does God feed the lions? Did ancient people know the lions hunted and that's how God fed them? So there's this whole misconception that if I have a natural explanation, then I don't need God. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But that goes totally against what the Christian God says about himself. He says, when you find a natural explanation, you see how God does it. Mm -hmm. And I say this is true over and over. So let's say I walk into a assembly line where they're building cars and I see no human beings. I see a bunch of robots welding cars. And I say, see, you don't need humans to build cars. Yeah. I don't see a single one here. But you say, well, then why does everything work so well? Because there's somebody behind it who designed it and built it. And so to me, the whole premise that if I come up with a natural explanation, I don't need God, is a complete misunderstanding of the God of the Bible and his mm -hmm. characteristics and how he reveals himself in nature. Is it something to do with, um, because you don't necessarily need God as far as like a scientific methodology goes, um, or you don't right. have to believe in God, at least? Right. Uh, is there something to that, I guess? Yeah, well, it's the false idea of God of the gaps, right? Mm -hmm. well, it falls off this. Before humans knew how lightning and thunder were created, there was a God, Thor, who did it. But now that we know how lightning and thunder are created, we don't need Thor anymore. But again, the God of the Bible is not Thor. Mm -hmm. The God of the Bible is someone who says, I created the universe. I made lightning and thunder to work naturally. And so whenever we appeal to God of the gaps to explain things we see in the natural world, we're falling into this trap that when the gap gets filled, we don't need God. Mm -hmm. And that's the mindset of those who say it. If I can give you a natural explanation, we don't need Thor anymore. Right. But again, the God of the Bible's not Thor. Okay. Um, so the there, is, oh yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, so when they make these kind of arguments, like we have this explanation now of how this works, no longer need God. Well, they're really um, arguing against a, a mischaracterization of God. They're arguing against a God of the gaps, which is what we don't believe in. Is that a, a way to put it? 
that's how I look at it. Yeah, yeah that makes sense. You look at it. Yeah. Um, but again, even if I can write an equation that describes it, right, it, it doesn't explain. It's, it's like the engineer can draw the drawings that describe mm -hmm. the building or the aircraft, but that doesn't put the aircraft together. It mm -hmm. doesn't turn the aircraft on, and it doesn't say, why did we build it? Right. And so it doesn't really solve the problem. And, and you know, this goes back to the claim that, well, um, if, if you invoke God as an explanation, then somehow you stop scientific inquiry. Mm -hmm. But that's not true either, because if I invoke a designer as an explanation, that doesn't stop inquiry. The example I always give is the, the statues on Easter Island, right? Mm -hmm. We know they were intelligently designed, but I've seen a bunch of specials on television about the why questions and the how questions. How did they carve them? How did they move them? Why did they build them? Mm -hmm. Right. So just saying that there's an intelligence behind it doesn't stop inquiry at all, particularly if you understand the God of the Bible who uses natural things. You then say, well, how did he do it? Did he use a natural cause? And if so, what is that? Did he step in supernaturally? And how would I infer that from what I can observe? How would you infer that? How would you infer a miraculous thing? Well, that, that's tough from a scientific viewpoint, right? Because mm -hmm. science is about mostly things that you can write mathematical equations for mm -hmm. and that you can make predictions about. Um, so you really have to go to, you know, a historical legal viewpoint. When you go to a court of law, you don't do the spring, the scientific method to determine if someone did something in the past. You use a historical legal method. I mean, there may be some scientific forensics evidence, but it's still not the scientific method. So I think when it comes to anything that has occurred once in the past, you have to really be careful about, you know, what does it take to infer beyond a reasonable doubt that mm -hmm. something occurred? And it's not the same methodology that you use um, in a methodological naturalistic lab where you're trying to understand how protons are put together. So that would be um, a way to uh, figure out a miracle that happened in the past. But let's say I view something right here, right now, that would appear to violate the physics or whatever, and, and I would think miraculous. Um, I think the critic would say, well, you're just not sure. Um, it's It can be explained, you just don't know what it is. And right. in that sense, it would still be a god of the gaps. Yeah, you know, um, again, there have been times in the past when people may have thought something was a miracle that was just unexplained. You may be watching a magic show and you may yeah. think something's a miracle, right, that's unexplained. But I, I think, you know, to me, um, you infer a miracle. So, so if you look at miracles in the Bible, they're not just God doing things randomly. Mm -hmm. They're God doing something for a particular person or a group of per people for a particular purpose. And so when you start to put all these things together, let's look at all the evidence. What's the best explanation? What's the outcome from a, a theistic point of view? Mm -hmm. and, and you start to say, you know, that the miracle is the best explanation. Now, is it the only possible explanation? Of course not. You know, in, in science, there's no 100% proof of anything. You always say, based on the evidence, what's the most probable or likely evidence that or, or explanation that fits all the facts. Mm -hmm. 
and you know, you can't be 100% sure of everything. So this is how I, I look at things like the resurrection. I say, what is all the evidence? What are all the facts? Let's look at all the proposals that fit the facts. Well, only one fits all the facts, and that is that Christ really rose from the dead. And so you say, that's the most probable um, event, the most probable explanation that explains all the facts, and therefore it appears that the miracle really occurred. But, you know, we could have all been created five minutes ago with memories, and there was no nothing. There's always, right, there's always <laughs> possibilities. So I always say you don't base your life on possibilities, right. you base probabilities. That's a, that's a pretty good uh, way to live your life. Um, so some would say, though, um, that because you believe in uh, something like the resurrection, that this would somehow... Uh, belief in the miraculous would um, undermine the scientific endeavor because at any moment you don't understand something, you might just say, oh, God done it. Um, but you're obviously a, a scientist who does real science, I presume, and so you don't think that. So how do you respond? Well, again, I would say um, God does things, miracles. He supersedes the natural laws for at particular times for a particular purpose. And I would ask, you know, does this fit the bill? And I'm always going to look for natural explanations first. First of all, that's how God usually works. We've right. already established that. Mm -hmm. And second of all, that is um, a reasonable thing to do. So I, I sometimes pose this question. Okay, suppose I'm... Um, an alchemist or a chemist or something, and I pour two, two compounds together and I make gold. I get a million dollars worth of gold. And then I say, wow, this is great. Every time I pour these together, I'm gonna to get a million dollars of gold. And I pour them together and I get nothing. And I do it a hundred times and I get nothing every time. What do I say about the first time that I did it and I got the gold? Well, in my scientific journal, I might say, I surmise that there might be some contaminant that I can't reproduce. Mm -hmm. But in my mind, I'm saying, come on. I was just praying for a million dollars to give to the <laughs> yeah. And lo and behold, I get a million dollars worth of gold. Yeah. So the most likely explanation is a miracle. How I present that to my scientific colleagues or whatever, you know, depends on lots of factors. But between you and me, I'm going to say, look, look at the circumstances. What's the most probable explanation for this? Mm -hmm. It's a miracle. I couldn't reproduce it. It's exactly the money I needed to give to the orphanage, whatever. So some, I think some would say, and I, and I think their problem with saying this is an a priori um, something that they hold to, but they would say whatever is most probable, it can't be a miracle because that's actually impossible. And so right. whatever the explanation is, it can't be that. Right. So this is David Hume's approach to miracles right. and his great treatise on miracles, right? That the miracle is the least probable because we know the laws of physics are never violated. Well, you know, that's a philosophical statement. It's not a fact. Yeah. If I decide the laws of physics are never violated, then of course there are no, are no miracles. Yeah. So if, I if I first decide the sky is green, then of course it's not blue either. Yeah. So, you know, if yeah. you decide something is impossible, then it doesn't happen. Yeah. So it is a a priori thing, then I guess. Um, I, I did want to ask you a, a a bit of a personal question, I suppose. But um, as a member of the scientific community, um, would you would you say that uh, your position with belief in God is a minority view within the scientific community? 
You know, it's not something I poll people, so I don't know. Yeah. I, I've actually heard that there, um, it's not uncommon to find deists within the scientific community, particularly within the physics community, because the universe looks designed. I think, you know, the, the polls show that the more education you have, the less likely you are to be a Christian, to believe in a personal God. And I think there's probably lots of reasons for that. Um, but, you know, I know um, Christians, everywhere I've gone within science, I've found other Christians who are there. Yeah. Yes, a minority, probably a smaller minority than the public in general. But there are certainly people of faith, Christian faith, everywhere I go. And you, you know that historically, um, Christians have been huge in science, mm -hmm. from Newton to Maxwell to Faraday to Pascal, all people who, you know, Newton wrote more about Christian theology than he wrote about physics. And so, you know, the, we wouldn't be here without that underlying group of Christians who are in science. But, but certainly it, it is a minority, like everywhere, maybe more so. Um, yeah. But it hasn't hindered my ability to do science. Well, that's good to hear. Um, yeah. That is actually encouraging because um, I don't know where I get the impression from, but I think a lot of people have the same impression as me, which is that there there isn't that many believers within the scientific community and that you kind of got to keep that hidden if you're going to make it in there. And uh, so I did want to um, ask you perhaps even a more personal question was, have you found it difficult to exist in the scientific community um, as a believer? Because uh, there are certain horror stories about this. Um, uh, not physical persecution, but uh, yeah. finding it difficult to achieve success in the field of science as a believer. And so I don't know if that is a rare thing that happens or what has kind of been your experience with that. You know, it, it does happen. And I think it happens um, in different fields more than other fields. Mm, okay. I think there's a, you know, I've often said if I had the opportunity to talk to a, a Christian who wants to go into science and is just starting out, there was some certain advice I would give that person. And I think these are things probably that I somehow picked up. And because I followed this advice without even knowing it, probably, right. um, I, I haven't had that much opposition. Occasionally you get something, but it's pretty minor. The first thing is be really good at what you do. Um, Paul wrote, do your work heartily as unto the Lord, right? You're working for God and you're studying his universe. Be a really, really good scientist. If, if you're a really, really good quarterback, it doesn't matter what you do off the field. They're going to keep you. Yeah. If you're a really, really good scientist, you're going to, you know, have a lot of leeway. And there's, you know, Francis Collins and uh, um, forget his name. But yeah, there's, you know, scientists out there who are well known, who are doing a great job and they do their work really well. The second thing I would say is know the rules of the game. Some of the scientists that have been supposedly persecuted did things that were not smart professionally. You know, um, there are rules in every profession, unwritten rules that you need to understand if you want to succeed. And, and some of the people who have been so-called persecuted really violated some of those very basic rules on what it means to succeed in science. Um, and, and then the other thing is I'd say Christ said, you know, be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. And this is kind of the same thing. Be shrewd, you know, there, don't hide your Christianity, but know when to stand up as a Christian and how to do it in a way that is beneficial and profitable. 
I once saw a Christian um, stand up in a public meeting where someone had degraded certain aspects of the Christian faith and made a perfect defense in front of literally a couple hundred physicists. And it was done so well and in such a manner that his position was elevated, not degraded by what he did. And so I think, you know, you have to understand what you're doing. Do your job well, know the rules of the game, be bold, but be bold in a way that you're shrewd as a serpent and innocent as a dove. That sounds like really good advice. If you're out there and you're thinking about uh, being a scientist, I would uh, take uh, take heed to that advice. That's uh, really great. I was going to ask you that, would if you had any advice for anybody yeah. that wanted to become a scientist. And, and I would encourage Christians to go into science. I mean, mm -hmm. you really are studying God's universe. I have a friend who's an artist. He says when you look at a piece of art, you see the soul of the artist. And as a scientist, we're looking at God's piece of art. Understanding quantum mechanics gives you insight into God's character that you don't get if you don't understand quantum mechanics yeah. because it's the intricacies of his piece of art. And, and we need people with a Christian worldview going into science. There are so many uh, things you can bring in. And so to me, I just encourage those who are interested to pursue that and look for support groups and people who can help you succeed in, in that area. Yeah. Well, thanks for that advice. Uh, one last question. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your book? It looks like you got it back there on the piano. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the Creator Revealed. Can you tell us a little bit about the book? Yeah, so, you know, because I'm a scientist and a Christian, um, I those are two arenas that people think don't necessarily go together. And so um, I find that there are Christians who don't trust science, and there are scientists who don't trust Christians, or don't trust that the Bible is reliable. So this is a book that um, is integrating some things we know about science and the origin and development of the universe and how they fit in with the biblical record in Genesis. And there's a lot of good material out there on this subject. I could name a dozen books off the top of my head. But most of those books are written to a relatively technically-minded audience. There are some books that I read, and I am technically-minded, so I think they're relatively simple to understand. And I'll give them to people in my church, and they don't understand a thing that's going on in the book. And so what I did was I said, let's write in plain language, with a few jokes and a conversational you know, tenor, a book that talks about how some of the greatest scientific discoveries of our day point to God, and then look at the Bible and see how that agrees with science. And so uh, this book came out just a couple months ago, and that's what it is. It's a simple, enjoyable, conversational, short, it's only 160 pages book, um, or so even less than that if you take out the appendices at the end, um, you know, <laughs> description of how scripture and science fit together and maybe we could get a brief uh, look at one of those things as i was reading the book i, I found uh, your take on the on the big bang very uh, interesting so how does or maybe real quickly what is the big bang and kind of how does it fit uh, with god in the bible yeah so you know there christians believe lots of different things about how god created and there are some christians who believe that the big bang is incompatible with the message of Genesis, with the story of creation in Genesis. So probably the major theme of the book is how the what we've learned from science about the origin of the universe, first of all, points to God, and second of all, is completely compatible with Genesis. So what most people don't know about the Big Bang is, and so what is the Big Bang? It's the current theory of how the universe began. 
And it really is that. It's saying that the universe had a beginning, apparently from nothing or from something outside the universe. And so the Big Bang really is a theistic theory. If this universe, everything in the universe, space, time, matter, and energy had a beginning, then whatever caused the universe has to be outside the universe, what we would call transcendent. And so scientists from the moment the Big Bang was proposed, as early as 1930 or so, understood that this theory was not an atheistic theory. It doesn't point away from God. It's a theistic theory. It says this universe had a beginning from a transcendent cause, and scientists still don't like that. Right. Scientists think the Big Bang is a dirty word because it's so theistic. It so much points to God. I've said that apart from the resurrection of Jesus, the Big Bang is the best evidence for a transcendent God that we have. And yeah. so that's kind of part of the message I'm trying to explain. Well, it seems that, um, like you said early on in the, in the when the Big Bang Theory was uh, just uh, coming out or whatever, uh, there was a lot of pushback from the scientific community because the implications seem quite obvious. Um, but I've seen uh, kind of the rebuttals of, of late are, well, it actually isn't coming uh, from nothing or space-time could still be past eternal. And so yeah. it, could it be? I mean, well, again, well, we, could, could it be? We could have been yeah. implanted with memories five minutes ago, but really don't know. So there is a gap, whether it's God of the gaps or science of the gaps. Nobody knows what happened at the beginning. We can run the film of time back almost 14 billion years to about 10 to the minus 30 seconds after the origin. And once we run the film back to about 10 to the minus 30 seconds, everything becomes fuzzy and nobody knows what happens. But everything from that point on and everything that we know looks like it had a real beginning. Yeah. Uh, Borde, Guth, and Belinkin, th three theoretical physicists, wrote, had a paper come out some years ago that basically says any universe that's expanding like ours had to have an actual beginning. Mm -hmm. And so all the evidence from both observation and theory is that the universe had a beginning. So those who don't like the, those theistic implications that the universe had a beginning so it looks a lot like God are the ones who continue to look for some natural cause. Mm -hmm. Of course, as we talked about earlier, even if they find a natural cause, it doesn't necessarily take away from God. What we know is that this universe clearly had a beginning, and that's what Genesis 1-1 says. It doesn't say how God did it. He spoke. But it doesn't say did he use a natural cause, a supernatural cause. What we know is this universe has a beginning. So science has really confirmed Genesis 1-1, and that's not going to go away. Well, very good. Uh, thank you uh, for telling us a little bit about that in the book. Uh, again, the, the book is uh, The Creator Reveal by Dr. Michael G. Strauss. You should definitely pick it up. I've started reading it here lately. I haven't finished it yet, but I've uh, got through quite a bit of it. It really is uh, written in uh, plain language, as it were. And um, you should be able to understand it pretty well, even if you're not uh, uh, technically savvy with uh, science. Uh, Dr. Strauss, thanks so much uh, for coming on. It's been a pleasure to meet you and to talk to you. And um, uh, I'm walking away with quite a bit from this conversation, so I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. It's been my pleasure as well. Hey, guys, thanks so much for joining us. If you enjoyed the show, be sure to click the subscribe button below, uh, whether you're on YouTube or iTunes, wherever you get your podcast from, be sure to give us a follow uh, so we can know you're listening or watching. And uh, if you want to watch the five-minute more uh, five-minute bonus segment with Michael G. Strauss, be sure to click on the Patreon link below and become a supporter of the show on our Patreon page. Again, the link's in the description, or you can go to patreon.com forward slash helpmebelieve. 
Thanks so much for watching, guys, and we will see you next time.